any larger questions that we want to get into about society and algorithms, inclusion, fairness, democracy, all that, whatever, all, all that big stuff. All the all the small <laughs> things, you know, the minor things we'll just check off. It'll be great, you know. <laughs> so I think you offer a unique opportunity for us to talk about to the personal and yeah. and the political. Yeah. Because you yep. know, a lot of That's our scientists don't really. You don't have, oh, really? You think so? The personal is the political? <laughs> I, for me, it is. It's just one package. You get the research and the personal and the advocacy and the political. I don't really separate it out for myself. From Quanta Magazine, this is the Joy of X. I'm Steve Strogatz. In this episode, Rediet Abebe. was born and raised in Ethiopia. I grew up in Addis Ababa, which is a, just a giant city. And I was randomly really interested in math. It was really exciting for me to have a chance to catch up with Rediet. She's someone I've known for really quite a long time. I became aware of her when she applied to graduate school at Cornell, where I'm a professor. And one of the things that was so thrilling about her file and her application was that she had letters from some of the world's top mathematicians saying what a tremendous talent she was in abstract math. And curiously, and for me, very exciting, she wanted to make a move from abstract math into applied math. And in particular, she wanted to apply math in realms where it hadn't traditionally been applied, areas like politics and sociology. This really struck a chord with me because I personally love to apply math in new areas. And so I kind of held out hopes that maybe we would end up working together. As it turned out though, she found a fantastic advisor, a colleague of mine named John Kleinberg in computer science. And they did magnificent work applying ideas about optimization theory and algorithms, other parts of computer science to really important social questions about the alleviation of poverty, questions of justice, Things like that. Well, as you'll hear, her interest in math goes back a long way. In middle school, we started doing geometry. I remember we were learning about all these trigonometric identities. And, you know, the thing I love about geometry, I loved it then, I still love it now, is that the idea of proofs is so evident Mm -hmm. in geometry. I, I still remember these, like, weekends that I would spend just being, like, I'm going to look up a statement and I'm going to try to prove to myself why this is true. And I didn't have the words, actually. I didn't have the word proof, right? Like I just, it's, it wasn't a thing that was said in my classrooms. It was not an idea that we had. But to me, I was like, okay, this thing is true. And I can convince myself that this thing is true, you know, from these other <laughs> statements. I think around that time I decided, okay, you know, I clearly really like this. It was a little bit unusual, at least from the people that I knew that I really liked this stuff. And I thought, I would like to keep doing this. And I don't know how I learned, but I learned that if you're a professor, then you just get to just do this for a living. And I decided, hmm. okay, that's what I'm that's what I'm gonna do. I didn't have any examples of math professors. This was not a job that I knew about. In Ethiopia, the way that our education system worked and, and continues to work for to a large extent is that you take these massive national exams at the end of 12th grade. Then you express your preferences over the public universities and you also express preferences over different majors. And so what the ministry does is they take whatever score you get and your preferences and they assign you to a university and a major. 
And because there's a huge demand for medicine and for engineering, if you're a high-performing student like I was, then you were likely to be assigned to those, even if you didn't really list them as your top choices. And mm-hmm. so this kind of sure. got in the way of my plan to be a mathematician because, you know, <laughs> I wanted to study math and I couldn't choose that as a major. There was a chance I might not be able to do it. And it also got in the way because I could be assigned to medicine and, you know, I was sort of like a, a, a child who kept to herself, right? I was like, oh God, I have to like care for people for a job. I, I'm like scared of blood. <laughs> I, I would see. make like okay. the world's like worst doctor. Like, I remember feeling a real sense of panic because I was like, I want to study math and maybe that's not a given. Also, I don't want to be a doctor and maybe I'll have to be a doctor. In fifth or sixth grade, I was like, all right, you know, what's my way out? So I thought I have to go abroad and just oh, do my studies okay. there. So I, I asked around, I must have done like a lot of research on this. And I learned that the U.S. was better because um, there was possibility of getting financial aid. There was a lot of universities here. You know, it's an English-speaking country, all this stuff, right? So I was like, okay, I guess the U.S. is where I need to be. Then I learned, oh, actually, if you want to get full financial aid, then you have to get into the top schools. That was going to be the only way I was going to be able to attend university. So I decided, okay, so my way out is that I have to get into these top-ranked colleges but it was hard to, you know, envision how I would get from where I was, which was like in sixth grade and like a, an Ethiopian middle school to a place like Harvard, which is where I ended up. Right. And so I was like, how do I get there? And I learned there was this scholarship that was given by the International Community School of Addis Ababa. It's a school where like, you know, kids of ambassadors and, you know, diplomats and like, mm-hmm. extremely wealthy Ethiopian people went, right? It's a very, it's a very expensive, uh, very, sure. really amazing school, but very expensive school. So, but they give up four scholarships every year to local students. You go through this examination process, interview process, all that, right? And then, uh, you know, every year four people get it. So I decided when I was in fifth grade, okay, you can get the scholarship and to go to high school. So I kind of basically reverse engineered the plan. I was like, wow. I, I mean, yeah. this, you realize how remarkable this whole it thing really is. is. The story it's that you're telling, ridiculous. that you're planning all this stuff as a fifth grader. It it's was, kind of unheard it, of. It really, it really, <laughs> it really is. And it's just like, you know, I'm so glad about how it worked out. And in retrospect, I look back and I'm like, what a ridiculous plan that was. I just think about how how many stars had to align. But, you know, I was like 12 or 13. I was, you know, I was very naive. I'm a stubborn person. I was even more stubborn when I was younger, I heard from my mom. You know, I was like, this is my plan and this is what's going to happen. And like, get out of my way, right? This is what I'm doing. So, so I made that plan and I went with it and it worked, right? And so I was really ecstatic, you know, that it worked out. In retrospect, I'm still even more ecstatic, like kudos to 12-year-old me for, for being like, this is what I'm doing. But then that's when it got hard. It's amazing, actually, that she was able to do this, to get to Harvard from Ethiopia. And when she got there, her journey gave her a unique perspective. At Harvard, I was able to explore these other interests that I had, right? I was clearly Hmm. invested in issues of, at the time, education inequality, but now it's more, you know, socioeconomic inequality more generally. I was kind of struck by the poverty that we had back home, but even more by the poverty that we have in Cambridge and the segregation that we have in Cambridge and things like that. How, how did you explore this? So yeah. I took a bunch of classes. I was a, a member of a, a lot of mentoring programs, but even I think maybe the highlight was that I joined the Harvard Crimson, the school newspaper as a writer. And 
I covered Cambridge Public School and Cambridge um, City Politics. And so I would go down to Cambridge City Hall and I would attend the meetings, the weekly meetings. I was like, you know, the youngest person by like a couple of decades, right? Like, you know, I was just shy. Like I knew the mayor. I mean, she's she's still around, but like I knew the mayor at the time and I knew all the city councilors and the Cambridge Public School Committee meeting members and things like that. And I just learned about the city and the issues that we are facing and we were facing at the time. One of the first meetings that I went to, Parag Pathak, he's an economics professor at MIT. He had given this presentation on how the assignment of uh, students to public schools in Cambridge was using this sort of mechanism that was unintentionally causing discrimination because it was doing this thing where it prioritized assigning you to schools that were closer to you. And, you know, that makes sense logically. You don't want parents to travel far to send their, their kids to schools. You don't want kids kind of just getting shipped across the city. But if you have an incredibly segregated city and lower performing schools or lower resource schools in low income communities, then you cause, you exacerbate this existing inequality. And when I arrived, I knew of Cambridge, it's a small city as cities go, and it had Harvard and it had MIT, but it also has, you know, Tufts and BU and Brent Eyes, essentially within, you know, biking distance, if not walking distance. It felt like it was sort of this utopia of higher ed. But one thing that was really surprising to me was that I remember arriving at Cambridge and arriving at Harvard Square and being like, I don't see any black people. Where <laughs> where are the black people? It's really interesting to be black your whole life and to not think about yourself as a black person because you're living in Ethiopia where basically everyone is black, right? And so you don't think about it. And yeah. then you arrive and it's like, oh, you you being black is not going to define so much of your so many of your interactions and how you navigate the system right i remember going to cambridge city hall and noticing how the demographic changes as you just like walk down from one block to another right and so if sure. you just walk around cambridge you would notice the segregation immediately yes it's just a very i mean this is true of like so many us cities but i remember thinking this is kind of unusual because in ethiopia we also have inequalities, right? We have like, you know, massive income inequality. But one thing that I I guess I appreciate now, I didn't realize I appreciated then is that at the time, at least we didn't segregate quite as much. And so you would have giant houses, and then you'd have plastic homes right next to it. And so in a sense, I think people were exposed to the discrimination that was happening kind of in their day to day, like you couldn't hide from it. But in Cambridge, yeah. it's you could live in like a suburb of Cambridge and just like never meet anyone outside of the suburb except for people you work with and just never know that, you know, like one in 10 students are, you know, starving in classrooms, right? You could just never know that. That is an easy thing to not know if you wanted to. You're talking about starving in the in the public school classrooms. In the public school classrooms. You could live in a neighborhood and not know that, you know, something like what, over 30 million people in the U.S. have lost jobs in the past six months, right? You could... You could not know that. It is very easy to live in a neighborhood where you would not know a single person who lost their job. That's just sure. it's just possible. And that so, is a fact of life. Yep. That is a Here fact of life in fact. the US. Yeah, yeah. And I I that was quite jarring to me, honestly, because I felt like at least when I was growing up in Ethiopia, I was sort of like, you know, we we can see the problems and also a lot of the problems we can actually explain as a resource constraint problem. But in the US, and at least in Cambridge where I lived, it was sort of like you can't even see the problems un unless you're trying to 
like learn about it. And also we certainly have enough resources. Like, so in Cambridge, you're like, the average black student is had like at the time was performing you know two three grades below their level right how is that acceptable in a city that has harvard and mit and has like all these other universities close by mm-hmm. right and so mm-hmm. it was it was very jarring for me to realize that these are not resource constraint problems these are decisions that we've made to make things, okay, this is not my problem or this is their problem, right? To separate ourselves from people who are, you know, disadvantaged and marginalized. And it's a decision that we made to invest in specific things and not in other things, right? When I arrived to Harvard, this is like August, 2009, I had arrived a few days earlier to do this program called Dorm Crew. A bunch of students would go and they would clean the uh, dormitories before, you know, the the undergraduate population arrived. And so this was a job that I signed up for because I, you know, I needed money to like pay for stuff. My parents weren't able to give me that much. And so I I was like, all right, I'll work and I'll get money. And so I arrived and I was excited, obviously, right? Because it's like, you know, I made this like ridiculous plan and my ridiculous plan worked. And here I am at (laughs) Harvard Square, right? It's like, it's going to be uphill from here. But I was I was really hungry and I had exactly forty dollars, right? So my parents had given me forty dollars. That was what I had. Uh, and I I, I I don't I shouldn't interrupt you, but I just want to picture yeah. it even a little more. You're you're flying across the ocean. Yeah. Oh, you it, arrive and it's a big long trip. And, it's, and you got it's your massive trip. Some kind you know, of bag or something. I right? Have I don't know massive what bags. Do you have a bag? I have two. I had okay, actually I had two suitcases. One of them had, you know, my clothes and stuff. The other one had tea and coffee because I was like I don't trust these Americans. I don't know what <laughs> coffee they have. So I'm, I'm like bringing my own. It's funny because at the border, they were like, they were like, why do you have so much coffee? <laughs> like, I don't know what you people have. Like, I need to. You know, so I had, you know, I had my, I, you know, I looked out for myself. I knew what I needed. I love it. One bag, <laughs> one bag of clothes, one bag of coffee. Yeah. It was and 40 sad. bucks, $40. And $40. Okay. And, and, and there was like a, like a, a gabi. It's like a sort of, um, like a massive scarf it's more like a blanket than a scarf my grandma had given it to me when i got on the plane she was like you're gonna be cold take this and so i had this like Mm. massive thing i was carrying not a comfortable situation i'm like dragging two giant because it's august now right or or july it's hot i have you know this massive thing i have to drag with me there are these two giant suitcases i'm hungry i'm tired i'm excited right because i'm like i get to be a student here i got to the dunkin donuts in front of um the Harvard Kennedy School, if you know, if you've seen it, it's still there. Actually, every time I walk by it, I remember it. And I was like, okay, I got to eat. I'm tired, right? I got to eat. And I remember just like thinking through like, what do I get here? Because I have $40 and things here are expensive, right? I thought $40 would go further. It does not. And so I no. remember like really calculating what I was going to get. And I got, I think I got like a bagel and a coffee. It was a good call that I brought my coffee. It was not very good coffee. I stand. People think Dunkin' Donuts is good coffee, but I guess it's not fine, for you. Not yeah, but you know I'm spoiled. I grew up in Ethiopia. When it comes to coffee, yes, I'm just I'm now I'm now like you know now I'll do it you know. But I remember thinking this is not very good, right? <laughs> <laughs> so then okay, so I got my coffee and I rolled my giant suitcases up and it was overwhelming. And so then I spent three days doing dorm crews. A lot of the dorms are old, as you know, and so they're not air conditioned. So it's hot, it's sticky. And, and, you know, our job was to clean stuff and we clean stuff. Right. And I remember thinking, wow, okay. I didn't, 
this was not how I expected things to go, right? Because I had made this elaborate plan to get to where I was. And it was sort of like, okay, the way I'm going to start it is by I'm like hungry and they didn't pay us immediately because it set, takes time to set up to set us up in the system. And so I was like, all right, I guess the $40 that I have, it's going to have to extend for at least four days, maybe the week because that oh, was boy. the dining halls were going to open. Yeah. It was hard. It was like, okay. Genuinely wow. So really welcome hard. to Harvard. Welcome to Harvard, this is, right? This is quite a shock. Yeah. Like, right. Exactly. And, you know, my then roommate, um, who's now, you know, my closest friend, she had taken that same period of time to do something called FOP, which is freshman outdoors program. They hiked and trailed and all that stuff that people do. I don't do that stuff. When she arrived at Harvard, having done FOP, she was like, oh, you know, I did this like, this like fun thing, right? And I was like, great, I kind of starved and cleaned bathrooms, (laughs) you know? It just set the tone, I think, for Uh the remainder of my experience. You know, Harvard has so many resources. Why didn't they just provide food for people doing dorm crew? It's like, it's pocket changed, right? And it just, it was not something that occurred to them. I don't know how clearly I was thinking about it at the time, right? Because I think I was sort of in shock of all this new information I had to process. But in retrospect, it was clear to me that I was absorbing all these signals, explicit and and implicit ones about, you know, was I considered uh, a student in the same way that everyone else was considered a student, right? I think I was Hmm. absorbing that I was a sort of second-class citizen there. Mm -hmm. And... You know, that got me like really fired up, <laughs> right? Because yeah. I was like, how dare you? <laughs> like, I worked, you know, my way here. I worked really, really hard to get. You here. sure like, did. Why yeah. am I not, you know, taken care of in the same way that other students are? When we get back, how Rediet is trying to use math to help the people who need it the most. That's ahead. If you're enjoying the Joy of X podcast, you'll also like Quanta Magazine. Our award-winning reporters bring you the biggest discoveries in math, physics, computer science, and biology. Quanta Magazine will change the way you understand how the universe and everything in it works. Learn more at quantamagazine.org. Quanta Magazine, we illuminate science because you want to know more. What's come through so clearly in your own personal trajectory here is sometimes the unwitting ways that the you know American society can discriminate against mm-hmm. people with different backgrounds or of different mm-hmm. race or whatever. I mean, it's clear you were always passionate about these kind of matters, but it's now become a big part of your mathematical and scientific career. It has. Yes, it has. Yes, absolutely. It wasn't until, you know, after undergrad that it all clicked for me. I was at, I I had a one-year fellowship at the University of Cambridge. I was like, oh, there is a way that you could do math, but also actually think about these other things that I cared about, right? I cared about Hmm. what was going on in the city of Cambridge that really, really mattered to me. And at some point I thought that I had to choose between caring about that and caring about math, right? And um, yes. and I didn't have to. And also just, you know, my personal... How did you realize you didn't have to choose? I mean, it's not like there are many role models to, that are doing math yeah. applied to democracy or discrimination yeah, or whatever. Issues. Justice. Yeah. I think there were some examples, right? So I mentioned to you, Prague is someone whose work I was following and I, I liked yep. what he was doing. I attended a talk by um, a 
Al Roth, who, you know, has a Nobel Prize for his work on yes. choice and other things. I see. So you were aware of economists doing this So I was aware of economists, but I knew I wasn't an economist. And what happened actually was Lati Babai at University of Chicago is, um, I had spent a couple summers with him. Again, I met him through like the most random way where I just barged into his <laughs> office and was like, I would like to talk to you. And he is also an intense person. And he was like, here's a problem set that you can work on, right? <laughs> so so I've, I've had a very close kind of mentoring relationship with him. But I remember I had talked to him a bunch and of course he doesn't do what I do, but I think he was paying a lot of attention to what excited me. And so he was nudging me in that direction. He really was helping me through that transition from math PhD to computer science PhD, because initially I was going to do a math PhD. Then I realized I, you know, I wanted to do computer science because I also wanted to do data-driven stuff. I wanted to do like more outward-facing work, and I thought it might be easier mm-hmm. from a computer science PhD than. And that's when I—that's when we met. That's when I remember yeah, talking to you. Exactly. That you were—you were applying to grad school. I think you'd already been a grad student, but you I were was, shifting direction. I was right? shifting direction exactly, and I and I had yeah. a lot of support. I think that there are people who did different things from what I did, but supported me really, really helped. You said, you know, there aren't that many role models you could look to that were doing what you do. And yes, there there weren't as many, but I could see snippets of things that I wanted to do in different people and I could piece that together. But also more importantly, I had people who just sort of believed that I, I was onto something and just supported yes. me, even if, even if they didn't themselves do it. John Kleinberg, my advisor and your colleague, is an example of someone who's who does... Some of what he does really resonated with me, right? But mm-hmm. more importantly, I think the most important role that he played was that he sort of just believed that I was onto something and he he supported me through that. Uh-huh. I was kind of interested in network science, right? Because I liked graph theory, but in networks, you get to think about social interactions. So I thought, okay, yes. this is a way for me to do graph theory, but also think about social interactions. And I learned about your work and I learned about John's work. And what I really liked about both of what you do is that you you do like really fascinating mathematics, but there are these like, these, there are these at, at its core, there's these sort of social insights Right. And I, I thought that was really amazing. That was an amazing way to engage with with both of these things that really matter to me. So I started actually doing more network stuff in the beginning. And then over time, I shifted and I thought about, OK, what's what are social processes, processes that are important to me? I care a lot about poverty. I care a lot about inequality and discrimination. Right? And so mm-hmm. I thought if you wanted to study those, but you also wanted to have like math around it, right, which is what I really liked also, how can you do that? And so that got me to thinking about how we measure economic welfare, right? A lot of times we use like simple measures like people's income, but mm-hmm. we know from like sociological work and empirical work and policy work that there's a bunch of other things that matter. An example would be uh, different shocks that people experience, right? If you um, have an unexpected expense of something as small as a parking ticket, but also as large as like a medical bill, right? Or if you you had a delayed paycheck, we know that different families have different abilities to buffer these different types yeah. of shocks. And so I was thinking about, okay, so this is a sociological insight that is important and interesting. And maybe we have an ability to use mathematical models to gain further insights into what's going on. But, but let me ask about this last point, because yeah. I mean, people might be thinking to themselves as they hear you say what you just said, that if you have enough money, you can Mm -hmm. buffer against a shock. I mean, if you need to pay a parking ticket, you have the money to cover it. On the other hand, if you're poor, by conventional measures, you you don't have 
the money. So why is it different from? Yeah. So at the extremes, just, that's actually true, right? So at, if you have a lot of money, yes, it doesn't really matter. If you have not that much money, then then okay, you're it's sort uh-huh. of like a difficult situation anyway. But there's a lot of families, you know, especially in the U.S., there's a lot of families that are sort of in the middle and they're like going in and out of poverty, right? So they're like right, ah. up, right below the threshold, and for those families. It matters. An example that that is true, unfortunately, is that like in many cities, the grad student stipend is not great. And actually, there are like these instances where grad students end up being eligible for you know all sorts of like different assistance programs, right? And like so, food stamps or something or some other other things, right? And like, yeah. I think there's like a separate conversation we need to have about like how much we pay, pay grad students and why that is. But at the same time, the other thing that is important keeping in mind is that a lot of times when people think about this, they have a different type of person in mind, right? Like maybe if you're someone who has like a comparable income, a kid or something, right? Like mm-hmm. that would be an example where kids come with a lot of expenses, a lot of unexpected expenses. So a lot of times I think we use these like simple measures and we just assume that a fixed income means the same thing across different contexts. And it doesn't because you yes. you could, you know, you could have a situation where someone is like susceptible to experiencing a lot of shocks or maybe shocks that are very deep. Okay. Right? So right. I see. So you're saying this could be an important I don't know what you want to call it, metric or something. How the ability to withstand these to withstand calamities, small or big, yeah, yeah shocks as and, you call them. Yeah, and I think the other thing is also like there's a book that I that I really like called "The Hidden Costs of Being African American," which talks about how if you were to track individuals that whose profiles look the same, let's say they graduated from the same college, same degree, same type of job, whatever, but you follow them over time, what they noticed is that individuals who are African-American, when they experience a shock like a job loss, they might not necessarily have the same safety net as someone who is, let's say, white, right? So if you, mm-hmm. lose, if you lost your job and you're not able to pay your rent, do you have you know, a home that you could go to with your parents or whatever, siblings or whatever, right? Or does that kind of like maybe trigger a, a cycle of poverty that might be difficult to get out of? And so there's a lot of sociological evidence actually that um, a lot of these like very coarse metrics that we use don't necessarily capture the, the safety nets that people have accessible to them and okay. their ability to buffer these shocks, right? And then you're saying you also wanted to look at how you could apply your your mathematical or computer science yeah. training to, to yeah. probe these questions more deeply. Right, yeah. But I'm not sure how you do that. I, this yeah. sounds very creative. This is an innovative thing to be doing. Yeah, so yeah. So what we did in, so this was a paper that was presented at the AAAI, which is a big AI conference in 2020, back in February. So what we did in that, in that work was we basically said, okay, let's only take the main ingredients of this issue, right? So we have people's income and we have some measure of wealth, right? Which you can think of as what you have saved in your bank account that you can draw from uh, in case of emergency, right? And then let's imagine that you have some distribution that determines the size of shocks that you might experience, right? So, you know, let's say, Steve, you're about to experience a shock. I'm going to draw from this distribution. And the this, the size of the shock is going to be determined by this distribution. And let's So here, that- when you're speaking of distribution, this isn't like as a statistician. You mean, I'm suffering, you know, all kinds of slings and arrows all the time, some big, some small. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So, and, and I'm okay. just going to quantify them, not by type, but just by size. I'm just going to say, whatever, something happened to you, I'm just going to say, okay, how much is it going to cost you? We're just like trying to get to the main, only the main ingredients of it, right? Yeah. And so you have this distribution and let's say that you have sort of like a Poisson arrival process for how frequently you experience shocks, right? So maybe mm-hmm. you experience shocks more frequently than I do or vice versa, right? And also you and I can have dis- different distributions. Maybe 
I experience shocks very frequently, but they tend to be smaller in magnitude. You experience shocks less frequently, but let's say that they are quite deep when they happen. They have have like high magnitude, right? So you can sort okay. of vary that. So now, so now what do you have? So now you have these four parameters. You have people's income, you have their initial wealth, you have the distribution from which these shocks are drawn, and you have some measure of the frequency uh, with which you might experience shocks. And so now you sort of have a, a ruined probability type problem. Let's say that if you fall below a certain threshold F reserve, right, which is like, you know, there's your initial wealth, but then like you may be adding to your reserve over time as you as you get more and more income, but you're also experiencing some shocks, right? That might be kind of dipping that reserve a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. So at mm-hmm. any point you have some sort of reserve. And let's say that if your reserve falls b- below a certain threshold, now you've experienced ruin. And this is something that we observe, right? Like we've seen situations where people are, you know, barely getting by and then a small thing happens like a parking ticket and then that leads to them being evicted, right? Like it's just above this kind of threshold Then even a small thing can like really have disastrous consequences. I see. So so like in just common language, when you've, when you've hit this ruin threshold, you suddenly go to being really poor and it's like a whole exactly. new life. It's a whole I mean, new you're gonna, life. You're gonna, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it means that you're not able to pay your rent. It means that you're not able to pay your medical bill. Maybe you know, like maybe you have some loan that you're no longer able to pay, and it's multiplying, uh, you know, sort of exponentially how much you have to pay back. Something really terrible is happening here. We want to make sure that people don't experience it, right? Yes, I see. Right. So this is where the fun stuff happens in terms of like just the math. Right now you get to think about allocation of subsidies. So, you know, we have a lot of programs in the U.S., food stamp, housing vouchers, things like that, basically things that are meant to serve as a sort of income supplement in a sense, because they make uh, like vouchers might make the cost of rent cheaper to you. Right. Food stamps, Uh cost of um you know, like groceries cheaper and things like Good, that. Good, I see. So, so these are the parts of the safety net you're talking about. Yes, exactly. Let's again map them to sort of income subsidy, right? You're just imagining that that you as a like as a planner, in this case, a government, but you know, you can think of whatever planner um, have a like a fixed budget and you you're trying to allocate that among people to serve as a sort of income subsidy, right? Okay. And uh-huh. what we've done so far in the U.S. is we usually use just like people's income, right? We just say, if your income is below this, then we're going to assume that you need assistance and we're going to give subsidies. If you're above, you know, let us know when you fall below, right? That's sort of like the- Yeah, the, now the I see of, where you're going with all this, that yes. that you might imagine you're just going to give the money to the poorest people, but actually there might be people who are less poor by this measure, by but income. they're exactly. actually poorer by- Resilience exactly. to shocks. Exactly. And so basically what we found is exactly that. You can set up an optimization problem of income subsidy under a given objective. So the objective that we used was a min-sum objective. Uh, basically, you're saying, I would like to minimize the expected number of people that experience ruin. Right. Let's say that's your objective. And you have a fixed budget for giving out income subsidies. You know, How do you optimally allocate that income subsidy to minimize the expected number of people that experience ruin? All right, hold on. Let me make sure I really get that. So, so like some people who have taken economics or politics courses yeah. will have heard about utilitarianism, right? Right, where we where we are concerned with not necessarily individual people, but we we kind of add up how many people are in a a bad situation, and we're right. we're very concerned with, uh, as you say, in the language of economics here, we're we're trying to minimize the number of people who are going to get ruined. Right. That could be one objective. Exactly. You know, 
like not that we want to make the poorest person really no. rich. That could be a different objective. Right. But we're not doing that. We're just saying let's try to keep as few yeah. people as possible from getting ruined. Yes. Then under that, what you have some so, algorithm so that says we have some how to, how to do this. Yes, okay. under this min sum objective, right? The version that you mentioned, where you're ex- uh, minimizing the expected number of people that experience ruin. Under natural assumptions, you can sort of solve this problem optimally, and it gives you the optimal sort of way to allocate your income subsidy, right? So now what you can do is you can compare that with the version that only uses people's income. You can say, what if I didn't know anything about people's income shocks, right? Similar to you know what we do in the US here when we allocate subsidies. We just had people's income and you just sort of set some threshold and you were like, I'm just going to give uh, assistance to people that are you know, below the threshold and not the ones who are above, right? So okay. that's a different allocation problem or like it's the same allocation problem, but in one case, you're only using information about people's income. In the second case, you're using information about people's income, but also their experiences with these different types of shocks, right? Yeah. And what we found in this situation is that this optimization problem that I mentioned to you that has these two versions, one with only income and the other one with income, but also the different types of shocks can actually yield drastically different solutions. So it can actually tell you in the version where you only had people's income, you could say, okay, I'm just going to give a subsidy to the people who have the lowest income. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm going to do. That's the information I have. Right. But actually maybe there's people whose income is a little bit higher than that, but actually are not so resilient to different types of shocks. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't be detecting them in this measure that only had people's income. I guess the thing that I'm wondering as you tell this is, it's it's sort of straightforward to imagine how we would measure people's income, but I'm not sure how do we know people's ability to withstand yeah, shocks. Is there yeah. a metric for that? Yeah. So, or is so that, that part of the problem that we don't measure it, or we don't even know how to measure it? So, so in the in the first paper that I mentioned to you, we assume that we can measure it, and we just say I I can see when it has arrived, right, and I can just sort of like. Uh, fit a distribution to that, or I know sort of like the distribution from which I'm drawing shocks, right? So we assume that that's true. But in a separate work, actually, that's this is forthcoming shortly, we have been working with a massive data set that encodes different people's different experiences with different types of shocks. So far, we've just been calling them shocks, but there's actually many different types. It could be you lost your job. It could be you have a medical expense. It could be that you were a victim of a crime. It could be that uh, there's a romantic relationship that failed. Like, there are all these different types of shocks. And so mm-hmm. we're working with this massive data set that encodes this type of information. And we're looking at you know, using data-driven methods to understand what patterns we see there as oh, well. Oh, I see. So wait, so from that kind of data... Then yeah. you can also see what became of those people, like whether exactly, they exactly. needed certain kinds of federal assistance or whatever. Exactly. Did they end up getting evicted and things like that? I mean, that's like a, an entire separate direction that I think is also fascinating, right? Because we have these data sets and really ultimately we're trying to make causal statements, but you can't really do that with these types of data sets. There's so many different types of constraints. Then you might say, well, maybe the prediction is fine. Let's try to predict stuff. But we know that with issues related to poverty, you know, state-of-the-art machine learning algorithms trained on, you know, like massive data sets and uh, like thousands of features actually don't do so well. They do like really, really badly. This is like an established observation now, right? When you have these data sets and you know that causal inference is difficult and you know that prediction is not going to get you far, how can you still extract patterns that can inform poverty alleviation programs, right? So that's like the question that we focused on from the data-driven side. So if we can just pan back a little to, 
you know, kind of common sense ways of talking about the things that you're talking about. It's like we as government planners or social engineers, some people would call them, right. you know, right? That's often used derisively, that kind of term right. that we're doing social right. engineering here. But, right. but it sounds like you're trying to use the tools of math and computer science and optimization theory and that sort of yeah. thing and machine learning now by looking at right. real data, data science too, right. to try to think like if we have a certain objective – Right. Which may be to help the, the person in the most precarious situation as much as possible or right. to help as many people who are in dangerous yeah. situations. I mean, you can right. choose. That's a question of values. Right. Um, but, but you have rational ways of approaching this now. In fact, not just rational, but, but provably the best Math- ways given yeah. the certain values. A lot of times when we talk about poverty alleviation, what happens is that we say things like we want to help the most number of people. And no one's specifically says what that means they just say the most number of people and it's like Uh well okay i told you these two objective functions in a sense they could translate to the most number of people you know depending on what Mm -hmm. you mean right and so a lot of times this job of translating these policy objectives to mathematical objective functions we don't have a very good process for it oftentimes it actually gets delegated to like someone in the background that we don't even know and so and so a lot of times we sort of like we we don't see the importance of this translation of like these policy objectives that we talk about versus the mathematical objectives, where it actually says you could be doing the exact opposite thing, depending on which one you pick. A lot of times okay. what happens is that the people who are doing the optimization that I mentioned to you, right, that just say, OK, just tell me what the problem is. I'll like translate into math and I'll just do the math and I'll tell you what to do or I'll do the algorithms and I'll tell you what to do. That community doesn't always embrace the policy of what's going on, right? So sometimes we do these like very consequential translations from policy into mathematical objectives, and we don't even know what we've done. We don't even know how consequential that decision was, right? And likewise, I think in the reverse, we don't necessarily translate what we've done to the community and say, just to let you know, you said help the most number of people. The way I wrote it down is like this, right? Does that sound reasonable to you? And so there's this gap that exists between policy and the sort of algorithmic optimization community. And many things could fall through the cracks. It did in hmm. this very simplified model, right? Because you're saying there are two reasonable objectives, objectives that we might have, and we end up helping totally different sets Entirely of people. Entirely distanced. Yeah, exactly. And but, so what is the lesson for that? That we could have good intentions, but if we sort of formulate it too different ways that might sound almost the same, but they're not, So you, yeah. you end up having totally different prescription of who should get so, the money. Yeah, exactly. So I guess this goes back to the very first thing that we talked about, which is you mentioned to me, you know, we can talk about your research, but we can also talk about, you know, like politics, right? And, and all that. And I yes. told you, actually, I see all of these as one, right? Because the way I see it is that this decision about of how you set your objective function or what information you take about families or what intervention you're considering, that was a very political decision, right? And we don't mm-hmm. necessarily appreciate it to be that. And so the way I see my my role as a researcher and also as a person is to have enough familiarity about all the different angles of the problems that I'm working on, both the math side of it, of course, but also the data-driven side of it, but also the policy side of it, but also engaging with affected communities. So I can appreciate the gravity of each of these decisions that we're making, right? Mm. Yeah. So this is such a holistic look at some of the biggest problems facing our society and our world is what I'm hearing. Like instead of carving out just the math part of it 
or just the algorithm part it's of it. You on. are trying to think about the politics of it, the sociology, the data. Exactly. And also just the personal side, right? You know, why and the personal, why am I yeah. yeah, why am I studying poverty? It could be that, you know, there's a universe where I would have grown up to be like very well off and I would have been interested in these problems. It's entirely possible. But I know at least a little bit, I'm really deeply invested in this because I grew up poor and a lot of people important to me grew up poor. And so getting it right feels like extremely personal to me. Uh, yes, it does. It. I'm sure. Yeah. Wow. But you've moved into these circles now where yeah. maybe nobody knows anyone poor. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's hard, right? Because you end up in these situations where like, uh, you know, and this is, uh, this is why I'm so excited to be a professor, right? Because I feel like for many students, maybe they'll be like, it's nice that she's here, I guess. But I think for a few students, I think it may mean a lot that I'm there because I remember when I was in college and my friends would be like, oh, let's go get lunch at whatever place. And I'm like, okay, lunch there costs like $20. Like I don't have, you know, $20 to spend on, on, on lunch. Right. And so I think that it's like these little things that are meant to be alienating to people that actually can end mm -hmm. up being alienating. And mm -hmm. I don't want to focus on these like kind of minor stories. I think there are deeper structural problems that we have in higher ed that, um, that make that cut even deeper, you know, uh, just about how we set up our education, how we set up our, even like our courses, our office hours, our, how we determine who can major and what, they're all these like much deeper structural problems. When I applied for faculty positions, I wrote a teaching statement, I wrote a research statement, and I wrote a diversity and equity and inclusion statement, right? That's what's asked of you. And to me, I'm like, Honestly, these are all the same, <laughs> you know, uh -huh. like I would have rather just written one giant document for you that shows you that to me, it's all the same. And wow. you know, it's, it's fine that I actually, no, I don't, I think people should do whatever feels good to them. Right. Uh, when it comes to research, it's fine. If in some situations you can actually separate out these different aspects of your job and say, okay, here's the diversity component, here's the teaching component, here's the research component, and I can compartmentalize it. But for me, I, I just can't. It is not possible for me to compartmentalize it in that way. And I think we need to make space for people like myself who, who for whom it's just a holistic job. It's, it's one thing. I see it as one thing. Wow. This is a wonderful summary. I feel like I want to drop the microphone right there. <laughs> Next time on The Joy of X, Trashat Jackson explains what a cancerous tumor looks like to a mathematical oncologist. I, I realize it's wrong, but just no, to have something yeah. in our head, like a pic picture a big roast beef or something okay. like that. If I could change our picture just a little bit, maybe yeah, give maybe me the better think picture. About, this is how we actually modeled it as concentric cylinders. So a blood vessel is a cylinder, okay. and it's got and it feeds a certain radius of tissue around it, and so you right. you would inject these molecules into the blood vessel, the intercylinder, and you'd watch it diffuse out into the surrounding tissue that that blood vessel feeds. So there's the cylinder, <laughs> and there's the stuff diffusing out radially exactly, from the cylinder. Exactly. Yes. That, okay, well, I wanted to have a picture. <laughs> I like <laughs> okay, the Okay, now I have a little too, more but... of a picture. <laughs> the Joy of X is a podcast project of Quanta Magazine. We're produced by Story Mechanics. Our producers are Dana Bialik and Camille Peterson. Our music is composed by Yuri Weber and Charles Michelet. Ellen Horn is our executive producer. From Quanta, our editorial advisors are Thomas Lynn and John Rennie. 
Our sound engineers are Charles Michelet and at the Cornell University Broadcast Studio, Glenn Palmer and Bertrand Odom-Reed, who I like to call Bert. I'm Steve Strogatz. Thanks for listening.